I hated history at school, but then I got to love it afterwards. And then when I became a Christian, I got to love it even more. I ask, do you enjoy history? Because basically I've been tasked with giving you 500 years of history. And the key is making sure that this doesn't feel like the evening is 500 years long. So first of all, I mean, why would you bother? I don't have a text as such. We will be referring to the Bible here and there. But we are overviewing what God has done. So what is the point of it? What's the point of thinking and knowing about the history of the church? First of all, it's the history of a miracle. History of the church is a history of a 2,000-year-long miracle. I mean, never mind raising the dead. The fact that the church exists. Because the church shouldn't work. church is full of, of people from every kind of culture, from every kind of background, people who hate each other, people who don't like each other by any natural means. And we expect to throw them together in a room and love each other. And very often it hasn't worked, but it does work so often. And it has continued to work for 2,000 years. You look at the history of the church, it's the history of the world's longest miracle. Another reason to understand the history of the church that you, if you're a Christian, are a part of is that precisely because we've been around for so long, we've been doing this for 2,000 years, we've already made pretty much all the mistakes. If there's a way to read the Bible wrong, if there's a heresy to invent, if there's a way to abuse people, if there's a way to make a mess of, of integrating the church and state, we've probably already done it. People smarter than us have already thought about it, and there's already a record of how we managed to survive despite doing that. But perhaps the best reason of all for understanding the history of the church is it gives you a sense of perspective. Because you live in a world that increasingly is becoming suspicious of Christianity. Where they look at you funny if you say, I'm a Christian. That used to be respectable. Now, now they're, you know, they're looking for the bomb in your bag. And people are tempted to think, well, Christianity is dying all across Europe. Maybe the, maybe the Christianity is dying entirely. But if you understood the history of the church, Europe has already been won and lost twice. The whole of Europe was evangelized and then lost. And then Europe was evangelized again and the gospel was brought back. And if God wants to win it a third time, he's perfectly capable of doing it. And he may well use you. And having the perspective of what God has already done sometimes more than once, is immensely helpful. Now, the story of the first five centuries of the church, it's one of unparalleled growth. I mean, the story starts in 33 AD with 120 people. That's it. That's every Christian on the planet. 120. They fit in the largest kind of a room. By the 2nd century, there's a quarter of a million. By the 5th century, there's something in excess 10 million Christians. In countries from the, the British Isles to, to India. From Russia to Egypt. It's a story of immense growth. But the thing is, you have to understand is what is growing. As I try to tell you something of the story of the first five centuries, what are you supposed to be looking for? Is it, is it big numbers? Is it big crowds? Is it kings? Well, it's not just numbers. The book of Acts records the number of converts only three times. In Acts chapter 1, there are 120 believers. In Acts chapter 2, it tells us 3,000 were baptized on the day of Pentecost. In Acts chapter 4, it says there are 5,000. After that, Luke loses interest. Numbers are not the measure of the church. 
The number of people here tonight is not a measure of the significance of what happens here. Now what you notice when you trace the growth of the church in the book of Acts is that Luke keeps emphasizing the word. Where is the word of God? Acts chapter 6 says the word of God spread. Yes, the number of disciples increased, but that's a side effect. It is the word of God. That's what people hear it for the first time. They are transformed by it. In Acts chapter 12, boastful Herod is struck dead, but the word of God continues to spread. In Acts chapter 13, Paul and Barnabas land in Asia. And it doesn't say that that church has spread. It doesn't say that evangelists spread. It says the word of God spread. The men are just being carried along by the word. The key thing you look for when you think about the history of the church is where is the word of God appearing and changing people and transforming people. It's not always where there are huge crowds showing up. It's almost never where people have political power. It's where the word is heard and learned and has an immense effect on people. See, the problem is a lot of the books you read, historians find it easy to trace institutions. They love to talk about political conflicts, but that's not where the word works. The word of God is working in individual people. And we're going to trace out some of that because that's the real story. That's the story that Luke was interested in. And that's where it still is. If you want to know where God is at work today, it's not necessarily in the mega church where 10,000 people show up every Sunday. That's just numbers. It's not necessarily in great numbers of, of decisions for Christ or emotional crises. It's where the Word of God is being taught and depended on. It's in your home, it's in your classroom, it's in your study, it's in the office where you work. This is where the Word of God grows. I'm going to run through um, each of the centuries. Well, I'm cheating. I'm mostly doing four. I think I run out of time somewhere in the 5th century, but not much happens in the 5th century, so that's okay. But 1st century. Much of the growth in the church, of course, is, is related in the book of Acts. And the plan is laid out in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. Jesus himself says to his disciples, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And that tells us a number of things. It tells us first, the engine of growth is the Holy Spirit. It's first and foremost a spiritual work. Its effects are seen in politics. Its effects are seen in the borders of countries and the actions of kings. But it is a miracle. It is a spiritual work. Secondly, the growth of the church in the Word of God comes about by when people like you and I act like witnesses. You will be my witnesses, Jesus said. It's not in the the great famous speaker on the platform. It's it's not in the the great signs and one-off wonders. It's in you living your life as a witness for Christ. That's what happened in the first century, the second, the third, the fourth, the fifth. That's where the word of God has always worked. And thirdly, the plan of growth is insanely ambitious. And you should be insanely ambitious too. Jesus says, be my witnesses in Jerusalem. That's great. We're already here. Be my witnesses in Judea. Okay, I can get up there in a couple of days. Go to Samaria. I'm not so sure about the Samaritans. I don't like the Samaritans. Jesus says, I expect you to go to the ends of the earth. What, are you kidding me? There's 120 of us. And yet, what does the history of the church tell you? Those 120 people turned the world upside down. 
That's what the history of the church is all about. We might say we believe that with God all things are possible. But these people lived it, and so can we. The same God who turned the world upside down with 120 people can turn the world upside down with you and I. That's the initial lesson. That's the first century. We need to move fast. There's a lot to cover. Think about the second century. I want to camp out on the second century. Because the second century is where the church really comes into its own. Everybody talks about a first century church. But all the churches in the book of Acts, they are by definition, they are immature. They've only been around for about 20 minutes. Most of the problems that Paul is addressing in his letters to these churches, that they are problems of young churches. In the second century, the church becomes mature. It's led by people who still remember the apostles personally. It's not a a perfect church, but it is a mature church. And it is a church where growth is happening at an immense rate. How fast is the word of God spreading? In the second century, the granddaughter of Emperor Vespasian, Vespasian is the emperor who destroyed Jerusalem in AD 70. In the second century, his granddaughter becomes a Christian. Her two sons are raised as Christians. They were the presumed heirs to the Roman Empire. She and her husband are put to death. The children just vanish. But that's how far the gospel traveled. F.F. Bruce says between 50 and 60 years after Christianity reached Rome, a single generation of, God, of arriving, the first time they ever heard of Jesus, 60 years later, a daughter of the emperor embraces the faith. Why else do you think the Roman Empire was so terrified by Christianity? Because it was everywhere. It was in every class. It was in the most ordinary people. In the year 112 AD, Pliny, who is a, a Roman governor, has to write to his boss to say, what am I supposed to do with all these Christians? He's not a fan. So he says, the contagion of that superstition has penetrated not the cities only, but all the villages and all the country where. It's everywhere. The Christian writer Tertullian records the, the complaints that he hears. He says, the state is filled with Christians. They are in the field, in the citadels, in the islands. It's both sexes, every age and condition, even high rank are passing over to the profession of the Christian faith. And that's one of the the church's distinguishing marks, particularly in the second century. There are no social boundaries in the church. For the most part, the church is living up to what Paul says in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 28, that there should be neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. In the second century, the church is the only body or institution, where that comes close to being true. Take just one boundary. Michael Kruger records that in the second century, something like two-thirds of the church was made up of women. And that's all the more remarkable because at the time, two-thirds of the world's population were men. And the reason that two-thirds of the world's population were men is because that when a woman gave birth to a daughter... That wasn't terribly favorable, so very often they just took it out in the field and left it to die. They wanted sons. In addition, there was an immense death rate in childbirth. 
So the overall population is two-thirds men, and yet the church is a place where two-thirds of them are women. Why? Because the church was one of the few places where women were valued. It's one of the few places where women were safe. They were, for the first time, protected from arbitrary divorce, from the insult, the insult of being only one of several wives for a husband, from the humiliation of casual infidelity by men who felt that they could go with any other woman they want, but the woman must be faithful to him. It protected women from abuses of all kinds. And that pattern still exists today. For all the people accused the church of being misogynistic and bad to women, Rebecca McLaughlin points out that the average Christian today is not a white Western man. It's an African woman. That's the average Christian. But I've said that the, the growth of the word, the growth of the church is the growth of the word. That's what you find in the book of Acts, and that is still happening in the second century. Except the word, of course, is now written. By the start of the second century, most of the, the canon, that is the list of books that make up the New Testament, is accepted by everybody. There's some debate over one or two of the books, but almost every Christian in the world knows more or less what the New Testament of these books and these books alone are inspired. And they live by them. Christianity is completely founded on a book. That's unique. Greek and Roman religions are not books of Scripture. They're not religions of Scripture. They have stories and they have traditions and they have habits and they have rituals. But the Christians had a book. In the second century... Even though they're still an underground movement, they're often persecuted, they're widely despised, yet Christians exhibited a, a well-developed and even a very sophisticated system of book production. This is a time when you want a book, you've got to write it out by hand. But one of the reasons we know so, so precisely what the text of the New Testament is, that they make thousands upon thousands of copies. That they used, that they made little small hand mobile versions that you could walk around with you. They had notes in it to help with study. There were study Bibles in the second century. That's even more surprising because most of the Christians couldn't read. Most of the Christians are illiterate, but it doesn't stop them being the people of a book. Michael Kruger again records an incident in a church in North Africa where they, they were having the Bible read out loud, because, of course, for most of them, that's the only way they can get the Bible. But the reader is using a, a newer translation into Latin. There have always been fights about translations of the Bible. He's using a newer translation, and one word has changed. Only one word has changed in the passage that he's reading, and most of his audience, who are illiterate, rise up and drag him down from the front and say, you have corrupted the Bible. They couldn't read, but they were the people of a book. They lived by it. They lived for it. It was their hope. It was their foundation. And that's where growth, true growth, is always found, in the Word of God. Of course, growth always brings resistance. There's persecution. There is opposition, political and religious. You see it in the first century, but it doesn't stop. It carries on, and sometimes it gets worse as the church develops. The second century gives you two examples of how the church responded to persecution. The first were a group of men who we call what we call the apologists. Apologist isn't a man saying sorry. 
An apology, in a technical sense, is a legal defense of your position. This is what I think, and my apology are the reasoned argument for why it's true. And there were apologists for Christianity. There were great apologists who who wrote these complex philosophical arguments. They engaged with, with the ridicule of the state, with the accusations that were being made by them. And they wrote these wonderful books. They're still useful and helpful today. Writers like Justin Martyr, writers like Tertullian. They said, okay, I I listen to what you're saying. Here's a reason why you shouldn't persecute us. We're not a danger to the state. The thing is, it didn't really work. For all the eloquence and the, the philosophical power of the apologists, the persecutions kept on going. Another response is much more telling. The kind of thing that actually worked, because there's a much shorter piece that comes down to us from the second century, and it's written by an unknown Christian to a pagan called Diognetus. It's simply called the letter to Diognetus. This is how it begins. This Christian, whose name has not come down to history, he says, I have noticed my Lord Diognetus, the deep interest you have been showing in Christianity and the close and careful inquiries you have been making about it. You would like to know what God Christians believe in, what sort of cult they practice, which enables them to set so little store by this world, and even to make light of death itself. You are curious too about the warm fraternal affection that they all feel for one another. And the thing about that is this is one man to another man. This is a man, he's asking questions. And the thing that makes him ask questions, what is what makes him ask questions? Well, was it a wonderful sermon? Was it a philosophical beauty of the Christian religion? No, he watched Christians. And he says, you guys have such contentment. You're not even afraid to die. I've watched the way you treat each other. You have this warm love for one another, which is exactly what Jesus taught us to expect. He said by this, all men will know you're my disciples by the love you have for one another. And it's exactly these kind of responses. People like this this anonymous Christian, they answered the questions that people asked when they watched people living out the Christian faith. Peter tells us in in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 15, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. That's what the letter to Diognetus is. It's someone giving the answer for the reason that has prompted Diognetus' curiosity. The trick is this guy lived a life that asked questions. If you're a Christian tonight, are you living a life that makes people ask questions? If you go to church week by week, Does how you treat the other Christians, does how they talk to one another, does that make people ask questions? Does it say, why do these people have such peace? Well, why do they have such contentment? How do they love each other so well? Because that's what happens when the Word of God lives in us. And then people ask questions, and then we can give them the answer. It worked 18 centuries ago, and it still works today. This is the the beauty of the small local churches. This is where the Word of God grows. This is where everything happens. F.F. Bruce writes of the second century, Christianity is still a despised underground sect. And he said, Christianity enjoyed in the lives of its followers and in the fellowship of its communities 
something that was more effective than any deliberate advertisement. Forget the internet, forget posters. Live together with other Christians, as Christians, in the power of the Word of God. And people will ask you, what are you doing? That's how the church grew in the second century. So the second century sets the pattern. What happens next? We're halfway through, a little bit more than halfway through. The third century. The third century begins with many decades of peace. People are starting to, to welcome Christianity until at least politics intervenes. At a time when foreign powers are, are beginning to become a threat to the Roman Empire, in the middle of the third century, Emperor Decius decided that the security of the empire against these external threats would be increased if he had a policy of one empire, one religion. Everybody should worship the same way. And that will make us safe. It may sound familiar, you know, you know, get rid of people of other religions. Lock the Muslims out of the country and that will make us safe. That's pretty much what Decius was saying about Christianity. And so the church had to go. The Decian persecution is one of the great persecutions in church history. But things were changing. Christians had become so embedded in society. People had watched them live these simple, beautiful lives of love for so long that the average person was not in favor of persecuting them. One historian says that this persecution was different. It was carried out mostly by officials of the state. In the, in the second century, when there was a persecution, your neighbor came along and burned your house. In the third century, he didn't want to. Because he knew what you were. Christianity and the power of the word living in people's lives had begun to, to draw all kinds of people. The historian says the old hatred with which Christians had been regarded was fast disappearing together with the old slanders about their practices. That's the effect of that, that quiet, compassionate, patient, godly life lived by people whose names we no longer know. That's what was winning the world for Christ. That's what was drawing people to Christianity by their thousands. The Apostle Paul, writing nearly 200 years earlier, showed immense foresight. He said in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 1, I urge then, first of all, that requests, prayers, and intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and for all those in authority, so that we can live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. Pray that you will be able to live a peaceful, quiet life. Why did Paul tell us to pray that? Because it would be easier? Because it would be safer? Or because when we get a chance to live at peace and people watch what the church should be, that's what draws people to Christ. That's how the Word of God grows. That's what they're still doing in the third century. And that's why in persecutions at the very end of the century, 50 years after the Decian persecution, the community is even less likely to pile on. In fact, the officials the empire is sending now don't want to persecute the church. Not only was there a tendency, says one writer, as 50 years earlier for pagans to protect their Christian neighbors, even the officials in charge of the public sacrifices frequently turned a blind eye on refusals to conform. And that's why by this stage in the third century, the church is really moving towards the, the ends of the earth. 
It's in the third century that, that Christians first bring the gospel to Persia, modern-day Iran. Towards the end of the century, Armenia becomes the first country to become formerly a Christian country. A missionary called George the Illuminator converts the king, and the faith flows down from the aristocracy to the people. It is the first Christian country. The word is spreading, and it is growing in power. The 4th century, things begin to change even further, but a little bit more complicated now. The 4th century, that that missionary zeal is still bursting out of that simple one-to-one life of Christians living together. The Armenian church, newly the first Christian country, they're now sending the gospel out. They will bring the gospel to Georgia, where, where missionaries have to invent a brand new alphabet just so they can write the Bible down. And that happens again and again. They are translating the Bible into languages everywhere they go. Two slaves, the sole survivors of a shipwreck, bring the gospel to Ethiopia. And the church is planted there. But the 4th century also marks the point where where Christianity is finally accepted by the state. In the 4th century, Christianity is finally made legal in the Roman Empire. And that comes with benefits and dangers. It all comes about a character called Emperor Constantine. Emperor Constantine is a a seminal figure in church history. He comes to power after a long and bitter civil war within the empire. The empire is really weakening. He comes to power at, at a specific battle in 312 AD at a place called the Milvian Bridge, which is just outside of Rome. And Constantine, who up to that point had been a a pagan, a worshipper of the sun, the religion called Saul Invictus, on the night before the battle, it is said he had a dream. And in the dream, he saw the cross appearing in the sky and a voice saying to them, in this sign, conquer. In hoc signes vince. And he got up the next day and he he had the Greek letters, chai and rho, the first two letters of Christ's name, written on the shields of all his men. And he won the battle, and he won control of the Western Empire. And he said he owed it all to the Christian God. And as a result of that, the next year in 313 AD, he issued what's called the Edict of Milan that made Christianity legal. A lot of people will tell you that Constantine made Christianity the state religion. He didn't. He just made it legal to be a Christian. He didn't even become a Christian himself until his deathbed. He was baptized on his deathbed. But it was first, for the first time, it is legal now to be a Christian. One of the obvious changes of legalization was in architecture. Before the Edict of Milan, the average church was somebody's living room. Or perhaps a, a house, you know, converted. It just looks like an ordinary house from the outside, but we have several rooms. We have a, a wee baptistry out the back. After the Edict of Constantine, Christians begin to build their own buildings. They base their first church buildings on the Roman Basilica, a long design of a hall. And as one writer says, this affects the character of Christian worship. It becomes more stately. It becomes more elaborate. A throne for the bishop is set up at one end. Ranged on the either side of the throne are benches for the presbyter. The table for the Lord's Supper becomes an altar. And it's not just the the character of worship that changes in the 4th century. The worshippers change. Because Christianity is popular now. 
Christianity now may even be an avenue to political advancement. It's fashionable to be a Christian. That's probably what it was like here 20, 30 years ago. It was normal to be a Christian. Some places in the world you couldn't get elected into political office without being a Christian. In America, you basically can't become president unless you say you're born again. And so what happens? Everybody says they're born again. I don't know if they are. A lot of them, I'm pretty sure they're not. This is what begins to happen in the fourth century. People who just learn a few words, who hide some of their, their grosser sins, they are now in the church. It's worth bearing in mind, we're thinking today about how the church is becoming hated, how it's, where scorn is being poured on the church. In the fourth century, it's going the other way. It's going from being scorned and hated to being popular and fashionable. And the fourth century teaches us that that's a double-edged sword to be popular. I mean, think of the folks you know who just go to church because it's it's popular, who go along to the, the scripture union or a Christian union just because, well, we're good living. That's what we're supposed to do. And you know that their only real goal in life is to make a lot of money. They're not moved by the glory of God because that's just what they do. That's the danger of Christianity becoming popular. But at the same time, it's not all negative. Under Constantine, it becomes possible for all the leaders of the church to meet together. The Council of Nicaea in 325 AD comes up with the Nicene Creed, which allows the church to have one voice in responding to, to heresies. Because there's a man called Arius running around, and he says Jesus isn't God. Arius teaches Jesus may be a God, Maybe God made him, but he's not the God. And this is gaining ground. And because Constantine has made it legal, because Constantine gives them safety to travel, the Christians from all over the world can gather together. That's that's not true. We can agree on, on this, this creed. We can say that Jesus is begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father. And that's used to, to resist the heresy coming into the church. There is a, an upside to this. Political acceptance of Christianity changes the laws. It has significant social improvements. I've talked about how in the second century, women find themselves flocking to the church because it's safe. That begins to happen on a, on a whole social level. Everett Ferguson says that married men are now forbidden to keep a concubine. Adultery and rape are severely treated by law. Obstacles are put in the way of divorce, infanticide, just leaving children out in the field to die because you don't want another child, that's forbidden in 374 AD because a Christian ethos is moving in the lawmakers. Measures are being taken to improve the conditions of slaves and the church encourages the freeing of slaves. St. Augustine in the 4th century, in his church in North Africa, they regularly saved up and went and bought men at the slave markets and set them free. State action banned gladiator fights in 325 AD. The legalization of Christianity did mean that a lot of millions could be improved. And we still live on, on the back of that. A lot of the things, the sanctity of life, that it's good to have pity on the poor, these were ideas invented by Christianity. A lot of people in our, our, our laws and in our politics, we still think that way, not because it's obvious, but because Christianity taught us. And yet politics is never a reliable friend. After Nicaea, Arius, the man who said that Jesus isn't God, he's still popular. 
In fact, he's so popular that Constantine for a while decides, well, maybe we should rewrite the Nicene Creed because that'll get us more popularity. Politicians are fickle. They don't really care about doctrine. They just says, what will get me votes? As Proverbs chapter 23 and verse 1 says, when you sit to dine with a ruler, note what is put before you and put a knife to your throat. Be careful when Christianity is popular. Be careful when political figures are helping the church. There is a lot of good that can be happened, but it is dangerous. Put a knife to the throat if you're given to gluttony. The good is that the power of empire now supports missionaries. A Christian Roman empire sends missionaries like uh, Old Phyllis to convert the Goths, the, the huge swathe of warlike Germanic peoples. Under, under work of men like that, the gospel crosses the Danube. It comes into what is present-day Bulgaria. The Bible is translated into Gothic with state support. Towards the end of the century, Patrick is born in England in a Roman home. And of course, his famous story ends up bringing the gospel down the length and breadth of the island of Ireland. That's the good. The bad of Christianity being accepted, being popular, being legalized, well, it comes along very soon after receiving recognition of religious freedom, something that Christians had longed for for 200 years. Seventy years after they got it for themselves, they took it away from everybody else. In 381, Christianity was not only tolerated, it was declared to be the only legal religion. In 381, the church repeats the policy, one empire, one religion, of the emperor Decius in the third century. It's a mistake that the church makes over and over and over again. When you see Christianity becoming popular, make sure you don't become the people who persecuted you. These are the lessons that church history has for us. As I said, I don't have much time to talk about the 5th century, except to say that's when the Roman Empire began to fade away. They really lost their power. The armies of the German peoples, those Goths, they actually sacked Rome in 410 AD. But even that was good. Because by that time, many of the members of the church in Rome had become so entwined with politics, they thought if the empire falls, the church is done for. The humiliation of Rome reminded Christians that we don't need any king's help. It is Christ who builds his church. And the church survives the humiliation of Rome and continues for another 15 centuries. These first five centuries, they teach us that the church is the work of the Holy Spirit. That the church rests on not being popular or favored by politicians but by a continuous, ongoing miracle that God has promised will never stop until Christ returns. These five centuries teach us that the thing that matters, the thing that really shows the church is growing, is the Word of God. If we give ourselves to that, if we saturate ourselves with that, and if we allow it to transform us, then no matter what the politics are, no matter what the circumstances are, the church will grow. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for the lessons we have in the long history of your labors among this world, in your faithfulness to the church 
that your son Christ established and promised that he would never cease to build. We pray that we may see not simply numbers, but a growth of the word of God in our country, in ourselves, in our homes, and in our churches. We pray, Lord, that our churches may become places where the word lives and where that living word causes us to so love one another, so speak to and care for one another, that people will come to us and ask, how is it that you have this peace? And we pray, Lord, that you will prepare us by our knowledge of this word to be able to give the answer, the answer for the hope that is within us, the hope that flows from the blood of Christ, the hope that's established in his death and resurrection, and the hope by which we stand and live every day. We ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.